Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I want to start off this morning with a story about something that happened back in middle school. And it was funny, a couple weeks ago, Dylan actually told a very similar story about something that he and his friends used to do in middle or high school. So I know Dylan back then, but apparently we would have gotten along real well. But our stories ended very differently. So back in middle school, my friends and I, we would like to get, get together at each other's houses and sneak out in the middle of the night and ding-dong ditch. Now, I don't know if kids still do this these days. My doorbell never gets rung, so I don't know if kids still do it, but we would sneak out in the middle of the night, essentially terrorize the neighborhood. We'd run around ringing people's doorbells and hiding, and go and hide, and we just, we thought it was funny. So we would get together at each other's houses to do this, and one night we decided to all do it at my house, at my parents' house. And of course, that's the night where everything goes terribly wrong. So we go out, we sneak out, and we're going around, we're ringing people's doorbells and hiding. And I remember that there's this one guy in our neighborhood who was always really mean to us. He's always really mean to all the kids. He's always yelling at us for things. So we're like, we're going to get this guy good. We're going to get him back. So we go, we ring his doorbell, we hide. He comes out, no one's there, goes back inside. We're like, all right, we're going to get him good. So we go and do it again. And then he goes back inside. So we do it like four or five times. And we're just ringing his doorbell and hiding. Eventually, he comes out just screaming into the, into the night. He just comes out screaming, who's ringing my doorbell? And we, we're just, we're laughing our heads off behind a bush. And so eventually, and then he goes back inside and his garage door opens up and he comes out with a flashlight in his car. And so we're panicked because the way we're hiding, we're hidden from his front door, but if he backs down his driveway, like we're in plain sight. So we do what any stupid kids would do. And instead of formulating a plan before this happened, we just all ran in different directions. We just booked it. And I'm the only one who knows our neighborhood. These are all friends from school, so they don't know my neighborhood well. So we just run in different directions and the, the rest of the night unfolds like a movie to me because each one of the little like, groups of friends that went different ways has a different story of what happened that night. So we'll start with my story. So, <laughs> um, me and two friends were running through yards. We're just booking it back to my house. And what I didn't know is that while we were gone, my older sister had come home. And she went to let our dog out. Now, the way that we snuck out of the house, my parents have like a gated uh, dog pen in the backyard. And we left it open so we could get back in. So she went to let the dog out, and the dog got out. I didn't know this. So we're running. We're going through the neighbor's lawn. It's like pitch black. And all of a sudden, I get tackled by this dog. And it scares the daylights out of me. Like, I think this dog's going to kill me. I don't know what's going on. And then it starts licking me, and I realize that it's my dog, Megan. And, and so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how she got out. And so I grab her, drag her back inside, and because the dog had gotten out, my sister woke my parents up, and so they were all inside waiting for us. Uh, yeah, so I'm just, I'm like, all right, we're in a ton of trouble. I don't even remember what that conversation looked like. I'm sure they wondered why only three of us came back as opposed to like eight. But we went in our basement and waited for the rest to come back. A few minutes later, one of my buddies comes down to the basement. He's all by himself. He just looks so distraught, out of breath, and he just comes down and he just goes, they got him. They got Jacob. We're like, who got Jacob? We're like, what are you talking about? When he's like, we were hiding in this bush, and this guy came up and grabbed him by the neck and dragged him into his house, and I just ran. And we're like, oh my gosh. We're, we're, we're in middle school, and we're like, he's, Jacob's dead, all right? He's dead. We just got to move on. I don't know what's going to happen. And then a few more friends come down, and they tell us that there are police cars outside of my house. Oh, and so we're just like, we're... I don't, we're, we're going to get killed. We're going to get kicked out of school. I don't know what's going to happen. And to be honest, I don't really remember how the rest of the night unfolded. I don't remember um, the conversation with my parents. Eventually, Jacob made it back. I don't, I don't know how. Um, but I don't really remember much else of what happened that night. But needless to say, we got in a ton of trouble. 
Now, I tell that story because the entire time that we were sneaking out, both at my house and at all my friends' houses, our parents were asleep the entire time. At least so we thought. Until we got caught, at least. But they were asleep the entire time and had no idea what was going on while they slept. And that's the question we're going to look at this morning. It's, it's this. It's how do you know if you're asleep? How do you know if you're asleep as a church? How do you know if we're asleep as a church, as individuals? How do we know if we're asleep in our faith? And if we have fallen asleep, what can we do about it? What can we do about it if we have fallen asleep in our faith? Well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at New City. And today we're going to be continuing our series as we're looking uh, through the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. We're looking at these letters that were written by John to these seven churches um, that are all located in, in uh, modern-day Western Turkey. And today we're looking at the letter um, to, the church no, or to the church in an area known as Sardis. Now, Sardis, a little bit of backstory about it. Sardis was the capital of this area called Lydia. It was this mil- military center, and it sat on this giant plateau. So it had, like, cliffs all around it, which made it really difficult to get to, and in turn made it almost like an impenetrable force. But what's interesting is this church in Sardis has become sort of lovingly known as the dead church. So we got a fun one to work with today. So this is known as the dead church, and the church, just kind of just like the city, were living in their former glory. They were, they were essentially a shadow of what they once were, and it had caused them to essentially fall asleep as a church. Now, this is the only one of the seven churches that's given no uh, commendation and only condemnation. In other words, they got nothing good going on, only negative things. So we're going we're gonna to start reading in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, and this is how the letter uh, to the church in Sardis starts. It says, Write to the angel in, of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So Sardis had this reputation for being alive, but they were dead. And I want to spend the majority of this morning talking about how this can relate to us as individuals. But, but before that, I want to take just a minute and talk about how this can relate to us as a church and relate to us as New City Church. So when I was thinking about this concept of alive versus dead churches, something immediately came to mind of how to illustrate this. Back in, um, oh gosh, a few years ago, before we moved to North Carolina, my wife and I lived in Michigan, and we were looking for a new church at one point. We'd gone to the same church since we were kids, and so we decided to try something new. And we went to this church that was sort of almost like in our backyard. It was like walking distance from our house. I don't remember what the church is called, but we just figured might as well try it out. And we went, and it was a church that, it was a decent size, and they always looked busy on a Sunday morning, so we, we figured it would probably be just fine. But we went, and it was weird. When we walked in, no one talked to us, which, I mean, it, which is forgivable. Mistakes happen. It's not the end of the world. But as I looked around, no one was really talking to each other. And this was obviously pre-COVID days, so people were allowed to talk to each other. But no one was really talking to each other. People just seemed to be just there. And it, 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 this especially hit its peak when we were sitting and watching the message, and we were looking around, no one seemed to be really engaged in, in whatever, but I was watching the pastor, and he spent half the message preaching like this, just kind of preaching, just kind of set back, just looked like he was bored. But then he made a shift, and I'll never forget this. He made a shift, and the rest of the message, he, went, he preached like this, just resting on his uh, pulpit. He just, and it just... And granted, we're only there for one week, so it's hard, you know, maybe it's not fair to me to make a judgment after one week, but it just looked like no one cared to be there, including the pastor who was giving the message. It just looked like they were there because that's what you do on a Sunday, but not there because they actually wanted to be. So then contrast that with a few weeks later, we visited another church, and it's, it's a large church in the area. It's like a multi-campus church. And we went, and it was nice, and, you know, the service was fine, and afterwards we were just kind of looking around. And this, this old guy came up to us who was a greeter, introduced himself, we told him we were new, and he asked if uh, we wanted to tour the space. 
We said, sure. So he was showing us around the space. It was nice. It was, you know, whatever. But he asked us where we lived. And we told them we lived about 30 minutes from there, which wasn't a big deal to us. But we, when we told him the sort of crossroads that we lived at, he responded with, he goes, oh, you guys shouldn't come to church here. Like, what? Like, why, why, would, why wouldn't we come to church here? He's like, no, there's, there's a church um, launching like a mile from your house. He's like, you guys shouldn't come here. You need to go there. And I remember thinking, like, this was before we ever thought about ministry, before that thought ever crossed into our mind. And I remember thinking, like, a church is launching? Like, what does that even mean? I never heard of church planting or church starting churches. To me, churches just were. Like, they just exist and you go to them. But I never heard of, like, a new church starting. And so we went home and we looked him up, and turns out the, the church planner or pastor was an old friend of my sister's. So we kind of knew him by association. And we went and checked out one of their preview services. It was a little bit before they launched. And um, I remember we just, afterwards, we went up to him and we just told him, like, I don't know what this whole thing is. I don't know what church planning is, but we're in. Like, I don't even know what in means, but we're here and we're, we're here to do whatever needs to be done. And that church was called Mile City. And we were there for a year after they launched and then um, moved out of North Carolina. But it's funny, our whole, like, plan of going into ministry all started because of that church. So if it wasn't for that church, it's possible we may not have looked at moving to Raleigh, but even if we did, we would have never looked up New City, because when we looked for New City, we were looking for church plants that hadn't planted yet, and we, and which means we probably would have never gone into ministry. So I can track our whole kind of journey in ministry all back to this one old guy who I don't even know his name, who instead of saying, hey, you know, make sure you fill out a Connect card, make sure you come back next week, because of all the reasons this church is great, he said, no. You need to go somewhere else because that's better for you. And so when I think of the concept of a live versus a dead church, that's what I think of. One church that's just kind of going through the motions, that's just doing it because that's what you do on a Sunday, and another that's putting the needs of people ahead of the needs of the church. And if we aren't careful, this can happen at New City. See, this concept of asleep and alive churches isn't just reserved for churches that have been around for a really long time. But a funny thing happens. At some points, a church plant becomes a church. And at some points, the excitement and all the fun stuff at the beginning is, fades away. And if we're not careful, especially people, those of us that have been around for a long time, we can easily get caught up in the excitement that was the launch phase or the excitement that was the first year, the second year of the church, and lose sight of where we are now and lose sight of um, what's to come. So if we keep reading in verse 2, it says this. It says, Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. So he's saying they're not completely a lost cause, but to strengthen what remains before it dies, and what remains is what he refers to next. He said, remember then, in verse 3, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you will will have no idea what hour I will come upon you. Verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. So this clean, white clothing imagery is used throughout Revelation as a symbol of moral purity, and it would have been especially relevant to the church in Sardis because the city was known for its textile manufacturing, so they would have really identified with this clothing imagery. So he's saying that there are some that have remained faithful in the church and and that haven't fallen asleep, so to speak, but they're so few and far between that they're mentioned as almost an afterthought. In other words, he doesn't say, look to these people and how great they are. They're just mentioned as almost an afterthought or almost just a side note. So as we continue reading in verse 5 and 6, as we close out this little section, it says this. It says, In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, 
but will acknowledge his name before, before my Father and before the angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So what's interesting in this little section is that there's no mention of any sin issue with the church. There's no mention of any false doctrine. There's no mention of any persecution or opposition. There's no, they're just existing. And one, one commentator put it this way. He said, often if we encounter no spiritual adversary, it's because we are the enemy. And this is ultimately the downfall in the church in Sardis. And that brings us to our first point today, and that's this. is that the minute I start believing I'm a good Christian, so to speak, is the minute I fall asleep. The minute I start believing I'm a good Christian is the minute I start to fall asleep in my faith. See, Sardis, both as a city and a church, they thought they were good. They were powerful. They, had it. they thought they had it all handled, but they were asleep in their faith. See, the world and sometimes even, even believers, we like to talk about things like the power of positive thinking. And like that if, if I believe that I'm great, then I will be. If I believe that I'm wise, then I will be. However, the Bible tells me the exact opposite. The Bible tells me that as a human, that I'm depraved, that I'm a sinner, that I'm evil, that I'm broken, that I'm in need of a Savior, and that there's nothing I can do to save myself. See, Paul, who, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, who, whose writings are the kind of the, the, what we look to to deem what a Christian life is, where we get all of our information from. He wrote in 1 Timothy, he wrote that Christ Jesus came to save the world of sinners, and I am the worst of them. So if Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, if he says that he's the worst of sinners, then where does that leave me? You know, I remember hearing a story about a pastor who got to have dinner with, um, with Billy Graham. And it was not long before he passed away, so it was in his old age, and he asked, he asked Billy what his favorite Bible verse was. And he replied with Galatians 6.14. And this will be up on the screen, and it says this. This is Paul writing again. He says, but as for me, I will never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. So if Paul and Billy Graham, not to compare the two, but if these two people both say, what, that I have nothing to boast about, then where in the world does that leave me? Then who am I to say that I'm a good Christian? I mean, nothing I've written has ever been added to the New Testament. I haven't influenced millions of believers. I'm just me. So who am I to say that I'm a good Christian? See, there's no good or bad Christians, just awake or asleep, just dead or alive. So as we're looking at this question of how do, we know, how do I know if I'm asleep in my faith, and if I am, then what am I supposed to do about it? It makes me think of this. I don't know if you have any weird fears, like irrational fears, but I have an irrational fear, if that's the way to, right way to put it, of people thinking that I'm annoying. I would rather someone dislike me. I would rather someone want nothing to do with me than to tolerate me and think that I'm just annoying. I mean, I... I love to make people laugh. I like to have fun. I like to try and be funny. But there's a fine line you can walk between being funny and being just incredibly annoying. And I'm always trying to be aware. I always try and be aware of that. But what's your, what's your response to someone who is annoying? It's not that big a deal. You, maybe you try and avoid them a little bit or kind of roll your eyes when they walk in the room. But you, you tolerate it. It's not going to kill you. It's not the end of the world. See, how often do we treat our sin like that? How often, if we have a sin issue that we're dealing with, do we treat it like an annoyance? Something that, yeah, in a perfect world, I wish it wasn't there, but I've just gotten used to it. It's not that big a deal. 
And that brings us to our next point, that we need to treat sin like an enemy, not an annoyance. Treat sin like an enemy, not an annoyance. See, the more comfortable I get in my faith, the more likely I am to treat sin as just simply an annoyance. Something that I wish it wasn't there. I wish I, I, wish I didn't have to deal with it in a perfect world, but it's not that big a deal. See, what if instead we, 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 we viewed sin as something, as almost like an intruder, as something that's infiltrating our lives to attack us and our family? You know, it makes me think of in our, in our first year of marriage, my wife and I, when we lived in Michigan, we lived in this apartment, and we were sleeping one night, and it was probably two or three in the morning, and all of a sudden, our bedroom door just crashes open. Like, not opens, but like, it was essentially like someone else was on the other side of the door and just like kicked it open. Like, it crashed open, things fell off the wall, and keep in mind, like, we're the only ones home, and doors latch when they shut. So, we... Remember, it, this flew open, and we both shot up. And I'm, I'm a rational person. Like, I'm very quick to explain things away if I don't understand what's going on or anything like that. But I remember just sitting in our bed just, like, frozen. Like, that's not possible. Like, how did this happen? And it, it terrified me. So I got up. I'm looking around the apartment. I don't know what I was even going to do if I found somebody, but I was trying to find what happened. Turns out the door wasn't shut all the way and the window was open, so it was nothing. But, but in that moment, it was terrifying. In that moment, I thought someone was in the house. So you, so you need to treat sin, or react to sin like I reacted to that door flying open, to be immediately alert to it, to not just roll over and say, I'm sure it's no big deal, whatever, but to be immediately alert to it and to react as if it is a big deal. See, being a Christian is more than just sin management. We aren't just to deal with our sin, but to avoid it at all costs. And to do this, it takes actual action, not just saying that I'm going to do it. So where in our lives, mine included, do we have sin issues that, that need to be attacked and not simply tolerated? See, it says this in, in Matthew 5. It'll be on the screen, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. See, Jesus' words don't sound to me like he's just commanding us to try, not sin. He's saying we need to use whatever means necessary to avoid sin like the plague. So if you struggle with, just for example, if you struggle with something like sexual temptation, you'd expect me to get up here and say something like, you need to be careful when you're on your computer. You need to be careful about looking at porn. We've, we even, you've probably heard us say a lot that, um, talk about the importance of having software on your computer to monitor what you look at or to keep you accountable to somebody else. But maybe you're sitting here and need to take it a step even further than that. And maybe some of this will sound crazy, but maybe you need to talk to your spouse about, hey, maybe I shouldn't be allowed to have our Netflix password. Like, hey, maybe when you're not home, even something as simple and seemingly innocent as Netflix, even that can be a temptation. So maybe I think I need you to change our password and not tell me it. Maybe, maybe you need your, your spouse or a roommate or someone to take your laptop, lap, laptop with them when they leave the house. You know, maybe we can, we, can think, we can think of these things like, no, I just need to be strong enough to avoid these things on my own. But maybe the, the, the easiest answer is to just remove the temptation altogether. You know, now in this kind of shutdown period, there's a lot more people working from home. So maybe you're someone who's working from home for the first time, and you're home alone with a computer way more than you ever have been. Maybe working from home's not for you. And that's fine. And that's just something to admit. But maybe working from home isn't, isn't the best option. I mean, there are things like coffee shops, if they're open. I'm not sure if they're open. But hey, as a side note, consider this an open invitation. 
come work at New City if this is a temptation for you. We got good Wi-Fi. And there's only a few of us here during the week, so it's super easy to social distance. We got offices. Feel free to come set up. I promise you, whoever you are, we would so much rather have you in the building here than at home trying to fight a temptation all on your own. So one thing I started doing this year is we, we've started um, any movie or show that's new that we watch, we look it up beforehand to see what kind of content it has. And this is something I've never done before. Some people might be sitting here thinking, I've done this forever. But this is something I never cared much to do before. But that means i got to come to grips with the fact that there are just movies and shows and things that I want to see that I'm just never going to see. And you know what's funny? These, these things that I'm talking about, these are things that I've spent most of my life making fun of people for doing. These are the kind of things that I've always, that I always thought, like, it's just a movie. Like, what's the big deal? It's just a movie. Get over it. Like, why are you being so careful about these things? But in reality, if we're, if we're dealing with a, a sin issue or a temptation, then maybe the answer is to do something drastic like that. See, being a Christian is more than just sin management. We need to treat sin like an enemy, not an annoyance. But the good news, if you want to look at it that way, the good news is that you're going to blow it. The good news is that I'm going to blow it, if you want to look at it that way. But the good news is that Jesus never expects you to be perfect. And that leads us to our next point. And that's that Jesus' perfection makes up for our imperfection. See, Jesus' perfection makes up for our imperfection. The good news is that what Jesus commands us to avoid sin at all costs, he never expects you to be perfect. In fact, our sinful nature makes it literally impossible to be perfect. He did, however, live a perfect life. He lived a sinless life on earth and died a death he didn't deserve so that you and I could have salvation. See, Jesus' perfection makes up for our imperfection. You know what's funny? Um, my wife and I, we've been married for about nine years, a little over nine years. And one of the things I think we've done really well in our marriage is I can probably count on maybe one or two hands the amount of nights that we've gone to bed at different times. It's, it's, it's routine. We always go to bed at the same time, no matter what, if possible. And because of this, this means I got to sometimes stay up a little bit later than I'm used to, or a little bit later than I'm comfortable with. And in doing that, I have become the classic dad in the fact that I cannot stay awake during a movie to save my life. Literally to save my life. I cannot remember the last time I saw a movie the entire way through. And it's funny, I do this, and I try and convince her I don't do it. Like, we'll be sitting on, a, on the couch, I'll fall asleep, and then she'll, like, nudge me awake, and then I'll try and make up the plot points that I missed to claim I wasn't asleep. Like, I'll be like, no, I wasn't asleep. This, this guy went here, and then this happened, and she's like, none of, none of that happened. What are you talking about? Or if it's even better, if it's a movie I have seen, like a few months ago, we watched um, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises and Consecutive Nights, the Batman movies, which are good and I've seen, but I fell asleep. And when she wakes me up, I, I know what happens. So I was able to tell her like, no, I wasn't asleep. This guy went here and then the Joker came and like, it's so scary. What? It's crazy. And she's like, you were snoring. You're, your eyes are closed. You're literally like laying down sleeping. Like, okay. But, but why do I do that? Why do I do that? It's not because I don't want to be watching a movie with her. It's not because I'm bored. It's not because I want, I'd rather be sleeping. It's just because I get comfortable. It's just because I got comfortable. See, how often do we get too comfortable in our walk with Christ and just fall asleep? Not because we don't care. Not because we're trying to. Not because, you know, that, that's our goal, but because we've just got comfortable in our faith. And that brings us to our main point today, and that's this. It's that following Jesus isn't comfortable. 
Following Jesus isn't comfortable. See, people like me who grew up in church, been in church for a really long time, we can be the most ineffective Christians on the planet because it's so easy for us to get comfortable in our faith and fall asleep. See, following Jesus isn't comfortable. It's comfortable for me to ignore sin in my own life. It's comfortable for me to keep my sin to myself, not confess it to God or anyone else, but following Jesus isn't comfortable. You know, as a predominantly white church, it would be comfortable for us to look at the racial injustices and the racial issues in our world and turn a blind eye to it, rather than looking in the mirror and, and confronting where maybe I've shown racism or where I've shown bias in my own life. See, it can be comfortable to ignore these issues, but following Jesus isn't comfortable. It can be comfortable to look at your, my non-believing family members or friends and say that if I'm just a good person to them, they'll get it. That's my witness. If I'm a good person to them, eventually they'll ask me if they can come to church with me. But following Jesus isn't comfortable. See, following Jesus isn't comfortable, but that's a good thing. That's a good thing. See, if getting uncomfortable means confronting sin in my own life, confessing it to God and living a holier and more Christ-like life, that's a great thing. If getting uncomfortable means we might take tiny steps, even just on an individual level, towards racial equality, that's a great thing. If, if getting uncomfortable means we might open our mouths and, and say something to an unbeliever that we know and possibly lead them to Christ, that's a great thing. See, following Jesus isn't comfortable, but that's a great thing. And the good news of the gospel is that despite the times when following Jesus can be hard, can be painful, that Jesus took the ultimate pain for us so that we don't have to. That Jesus came to this earth, died a literal death, so that even though following him can be difficult, that we can ultimately spend eternity with him in glory. See, following Jesus isn't, isn't comfortable. It isn't easy. But I promise you, it is so worth it. As I close this morning, I want to leave us with this quote. It's by, it's by a, a man named Elie Wiesel. If you're not familiar with him, he was a Holocaust survivor. He's an author. Um, he's, he's spent a lot of time writing about his time in Auschwitz. And, and he says this, this quote that will be up on the screen. He says, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, but it's indifference. Let us not be indifferent in our faith. Let us not get comfortable in our own faith. Rather, let's leave today asking the question, where have I become indifferent in my faith? Where have I become comfortable in my walk with Christ? So you remember, following Jesus isn't comfortable. But because of what Jesus did when he came to this earth, when he died for you and I, when he died a death that he didn't deserve, it is absolutely worth it. See, following Jesus isn't comfortable, but I promise you that it's worth it. Will you pray with me?